Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today I'm talking to Hassan Osman. He's the host of Writer on the Side and himself a prolific writer. We talk about crafting books that sell and keep selling, self-publishing on Amazon, and how to write while having a full-time job. Here's Hassan. I was super fortunate to be on your show because that I think was the first time that I was ever allowed to talk about the writing side of things and not just the startup side of things. And it makes a, lot, a whole lot of difference to a writer to be appreciated for the craft of actually putting words into you know, a book instead of just the expert who uses the medium of writing. And what I find super interesting in your journey, now that I've uh, listened to your podcast a lot and just followed you on social media and wherever you are not not as intensely as i use social media maybe but you're there right you, i can find you there um i see that you approach writing in a quite a different way than most other people who use writing as a means to communicate with potential customers or even to to sell books to make a living off for you writing is a thing you do on the side obviously your podcast is called writer on the side or you you do things intentionally as a side project and that is novel to me because most people do a thing like either they do it fully or they don't do it at all. So I would love to know more about this intentional choice and how that came about. Yeah, gosh, where do we start? Uh, first of all, I'm super <laughs> glad we're connecting on this. It's, it's, it's an honor being on your show, too. And this is a lot of fun. Really looking forward to it. By the way, I followed your guidelines I haven't prepared anything for this casual conversation. <laughs> I've got my cup of coffee. Way and, to go. Um, Me too. There we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I go on rambling about something, feel free to cut me off or redirect oh, me because I, I, I don't have it structured. That's what I do this for. Come on. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I love it. I, I love sort of a very casual, laid back conversation. So um, let me start with what I do for my day job. So I work for Cisco Systems. I'm a director leading what's called the Program Management Office uh, for the Americas. I always have to say this, Ovid, whenever I'm on a podcast, views are my own and not those of my company, right? It's a yeah. lawyer-required note. I guess it comes with the uh, territory of being a full-time employee and, uh, and doing things on the side. And I've always had this passion for writing, for sharing knowledge, for teaching, and uh, the first day, not in my current job, but my previous job, I was a consultant at, at Ernst & Young, uh, now uh, EY, kind of helping uh, large organizations. First day on the job, I, I finish up, go back home, and the first thing I do is open up my laptop and start writing a book. Like first, literally the first kind of chapter of that book. So it's always been in me uh, that I wanted to kind of share my knowledge. I really enjoyed the entrepreneurial side of it. But then I said... With my constraints, a job is very demanding. I'm married. I've got two little girls. Family takes a lot, uh, up a lot of time. What can I do with like my disposable free time uh, to be able to, you know, enjoy that time that I have? So I had a blog, but I wasn't as actively involved in it as, as I was with writing. And so in a way, it was very time boxed. Like I've got X amount of time per day or per week where I can spend writing. And so I might as well put that effort into a product that, that I can potentially uh, sell later on as opposed to, you know, focusing on Twitter or any other social media. So that's sort of my strategy. It's really, you know, sort of time boxing uh, what, I, uh, what I have in terms of my free time and, uh, and focusing on, on books from that standpoint. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Like it, th to me, the the interesting thing is that you are successful with your books, and that people read your books, they buy your books, they like your books, they talk about your books. Yet still, uh, and and that's the the part. I don't think it's confusing. It's just an intentional choice. You still don't want to become a full time writer. Yeah. Is there anything that kind of keeps you from wanting to become a full time writer? Yeah, that's a great question. And and you're too kind about the the comments about the books. I've been very fortunate that uh you know they've they've been picked up. And we can talk a little bit about leveraging platforms versus selling on your own. Um, you know, I think this is the first time I I can give an answer which is more of an I don't know. Like previously it was a no. Like I don't think I want to do this 100 full time because I enjoy the gray matter stimulation. I enjoy the fact that I'm working a full-time job. I'm, I'm, you know, I enjoy that corporate side of the world, and then I kind of enjoy that. I'm not sure if I do writing exclusively for a living, where I have to make ends meet, uh, would be something that I'd enjoy doing uh, without sort of having that a uh, little bit of a security blanket. Plus, it's the mental stimulation. It's sort of being able to do both. A lot of the topics that I write about uh, of it in my books have to do with what I learn in my job too, right? So it's about managing virtual teams. It's about communicating um, uh, via email with large teams. Uh, it's about hybrid work now. It's about project kickoff meetings. So a lot of that is sort of knowledge I gain from on the job, sort of tacit knowledge, and they kind of translated to that. Um, but now it's it feels like, well, you know, recession potentially around the corner. We're all hearing the news, uh, layoffs left and right. And so it's like, well, if I had to, uh, then it's probably not too bad. Like I actually enjoy waking up and, and, and writing uh, and creating courses, too. So I kind of do that as well, which is similar in the same vein as as the books. Um, but yeah, um, so that's that's sort of my packaged answer for you. <laughs> that's probably a maybe <laughs> at this point in time. Nope. I can I can see first I I can totally understand that this is something that you enjoy doing and you don't want to kind of ruin it by having like f for it to have to work right for you and if you don't like it you still have to do it because that's the only way you would have an income it makes makes perfect sense and the other thing like slowly shifting perspective also makes sense like with the recession owning your means of production to you know get a bit into that kind of jargon that's important at this point because how quickly we can all lose our jobs. Like I think this recession in particular is showing us even in the, the tech sector that has usually been, you know, more stable and people have been more higher qualified and been the last to let go. There is no job security. Like you, right. you can like whatever happens, you have no control over which company is going to let how many people go. It's, it's quite bizarre. It's very sad to watch. And um, it's certainly giving me even more courage to tell people to at least try to do something on the side, no matter if it's writing or building a business or growing a community, building an audience, building reputation so that you can leverage it in the future. doesn't matter what it is. Anything on the side is better than just f totally focusing on the one thing that may be gone within a day. So 100%. I appreciate your perspective on this. Um, you, you just said something about social media platforms and the, the presence or lack of presence thereof. And you have built kind of an audience that is not technically located exclusively on social media. 
Can you tell me more about like how you've been increasing your reputation in the field and just the eyeballs on your products without being like a Twitter extremist? <laughs> Can you tell me about that? <laughs> I'm not sure extremist is, is the right word because I, I do aspire to be, you know, have the number of followers that you have too. Um, look, it's, it's a simple mathematical formula, right? I've got limited time in the day that I can spend on uh, anything outside of work and outside of family. And so I said, where do I want to spend that time? Do I go and build an audience, which, by the way, is a fantastic strategy, just like, you know, you've been super successful. You know, folks like Daniel Vassallo has, have been insanely successful. Justin Welch. I mean, a lot of folks that have built an audience and then monetized it is a phenomenal strategy. However, it does take time and it takes patience and it takes a lot of work, too. Like people think. You know, it's not like just scheduling things and hype fury or whatever and, and you're done, right? You actively have to engage with people online and so on and so forth. And so I took a step back and said, that works. However, with my situation, I need to think a little bit differently. I thought about leveraging existing marketplaces, such as Amazon, for example, for books and Udemy for courses to say that's where the traffic already is, right? They do take a much higher co cut from the profits that you know, that you'd take compared to what you would do selling uh, uh, solo. And you and I have talked about this Gumroad for, versus Amazon, so on and so forth. However, the volume is insane on those platforms, right? A, a platform like Amazon, people are on there with their credit cards ready to buy something, right? They're not there like Facebook to socialize or Instagram, scroll through photos or TikTok for videos or entertainment. They're on Amazon to buy. And so when you have millions of users On that and by the way, obviously it started with books, so it's a it's the largest book marketplace. I'm like, well, well, how can I leverage that if I don't have an audience, I don't have a lot of followers to use the algorithm of Amazon to be able to get traction and eyeballs on my books and then increase conversion rates through you know creating a better cover, better title, subtitle, description, all those metrics, but really kind of focusing on that. And I've been very fortunate, very lucky that initially, you know, published my first book. Well, my first book was back in 2006. That was a huge lesson learned. Uh, I can talk about that here just as a sidebar. I used to think that uh, if you take a pie chart and you, you split it into uh, 90% versus 10%, I used to think that 90% of it is writing and like 10% is marketing. Uh, but then it turns out to be the other way around, right? <laughs> it's 10% oh, yeah. writing, even though it's a lot of work, but then 90% of it is marketing, starting out from when you, when you first start writing out the book all the way through and even after launch. So with my first book on Amazon, I learned that lesson back in 2014 and launched a book about virtual teams. And I started seeing a lot of traction on that. And even to this day, you know, eight years later, it still brings in some sort of revenue because of some of the tactics I've, I've followed uh, and I learned over the years. Do, do you update your books that you've written? No, ever? very little. I mean, I update, maybe I tweak sometimes uh, the description, uh, a couple of things. But the, the cool thing about the topics I write about is that they are uh, evergreen, right? So uh, there are a couple of types of books that need some tweaking, but Unlike technology books, which usually require an update to, let's say, the, the, the graphical user interface or commands that change over time with different versions. With management books, soft skills, those are sort of evergreen where I don't really need to spend that much time uh, on updating them. 
I found uh, that too. Like, I don't have the time, honestly. <laughs> Even though I, I just have two books, but they are they're quite sizable. So any edit kind of has this long tail of things you need to do to make sure everything is still kind of in the place where you want it to be. So I also I wonder like should I revise my book at some point? Like Zero to Sold is now two years old, right? Two years and a couple months. It could be a good time to think of a second edition, take the learnings from my whole building public thing that I've since done, put it into the book. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking you because I myself would like to know, like, do people do that? Like, is that something that in a, I, I would assume in a regular publisher, like writer uh, relationship where you're not self-published, the publisher would see stuff drying up or interest for a new revised edition being present somewhere and then kind of ask you to do it. But as a self-published author, Usually you have to do everything, right? So yeah. you don't you don't really know when the when or if there is a time to change um, the books. So that yeah, interesting. I I thought like with the amount of books that you have, you have plenty, right? How many do you have on Amazon at this point? I have, uh, Sixteen so far. Yeah, writing uh, writing the seventeenth one now. <laughs> that's that's a lot of work to to just even. I honestly I, I yeah. wouldn't even know. I would probably forget. How oh, the names of a couple of them along the way? How has that been? Um, has it been a problem for you to just make sure every one of them gets the same amount of attention? Yeah, the great question. So going back to what you were saying, updating the book, right? Does it make sense or not? I really think it depends. I really think it depends on a few factors. One is obviously the big one, uh, the type of content, right? So if you're writing a book about operating systems or uh, graphical user interface or whatever, obviously very soon it's going to become obsolete in, in two to three years. But then others, and I'm, I, I recall that we, we had a good dis discussion about Zero to Sold. I feel like it, ha it lasts more than two years in terms of the content of it, that how much of it is really does need to change or be tweaked. So it's also a factor of how much of the book needs changing or updating. If it's minor updates, then it's probably not worth going through it. However, if you are getting feedback from the market. And this is so important. I think you, you talk about this so much too, is listening to the market, listening to the readers, listening to anyone who's consuming your content. If you feel like the product that you put out there is outdated based on some questions or clarifications, then it's significant, then it probably is a good prompt to update it. And then when you want to update it, there's two ways to go through with that. It's either updated silently, right? It's sort of like you go into Amazon and then update the content no one's going to know unless they download the book, um, like do a refresh on the download or the new users would get the new version, or you go through a major relaunch with a version 2.0 or, or the next iteration of the book, right? Um, I haven't done uh, the latter, so I haven't done a relaunch of a version 2.0 book. However, I have made some tweaks like typos, for example, if that's something's off, or I have like a small paragraph that doesn't apply anymore, or I need to kind of mention a new product that I have you know, more evergreen, I, I'll add that in. But to be honest, I like, um, it's funny, I'd rather spend that time writing my second next next book, as opposed to, you know, pruning all the previous books that I have. It's just, uh, you know, what I enjoy doing. <laughs> That that is an incredibly interesting perspective because like obviously you could spend a lot of time like updating. You could probably update it daily if you wanted to by having yet another story that you could put somewhere or a little side note or a new link to a new resource that has come up like the week before that that is interesting for people. But people don't usually update their their Kindle ebooks even, right? They're not right. going to buy a new paper version just because you added a new link. So that is probably not worth it. But even with an ebook. 
the update mechanics are kind of complicated, I feel. Like you have to actively update your book as a reader and it kind of messes with your bookmarks if you have any notes, if you have any of So it really, the, the technology is not like version compatible, it feels. I Before know. I forget, I wanted to mention one thing. So, so on the note of updating the book. So back in 2014, I published the, like the, the, the first Amazon bestseller, which was Influencing Virtual Teams. That was a book about working remotely. And during COVID, everyone started working remotely, right? So now everyone went to Amazon, wanted to learn a little bit more about how do we do this. Luckily, my book was, you know, highly rated, reviewed. So it kind of bubbled up in the, in the charts. So that caught the attention of a few traditional publishers. And I had a traditional publisher, a top 10 traditional publisher, actually reach out and say they'd like me to take that book and relaunch it as a traditionally published book. I ended up saying no, that's why I'm not naming who the traditional publisher is, but they basically wanted to say, well, first of all, you need to double the size of the book because I write short books for busy managers, so that's kind of my thing, and that's probably why why it takes me a lot less time than than you know, for, for example, a huge book uh, that's more of like a manual. Um and they wanted to double it in size. So I was like, okay, maybe that's not my shtick. And then they said they're going to have to republish it as a brand new book, which means I lose all the um uh, all the reviews, all the ratings, all of that goes out the window, even though it retains the same title. It's kind of relaunching a new book uh, from scratch, right? So it was like, well, you know, and, and there was a couple of other things that they wanted to do. And I, I decided it's just not worth it. You know, I was I was getting a bestseller status for, for a couple of months there. And I decided to just ride that wave. And I'm happy about that decision. But it brings to the point what you were just saying, which is, you know, republishing or updating a book is not just, you know, a couple of clicks and you're good to go. You kind of need to factor in a few things uh, in terms of second order effects. Honestly, that story just blows my mind with regard to how short-sighted the publisher can be. And I'm I'm glad you're not naming them. <laughs> or even if you were, there's probably not much difference because the traditional model is just kind of oriented along that way, right? Like, does if if any of the other publishers had reached out, they probably would have gone through the exact same steps because those are the steps you take. It kind of yeah, it blows my mind that a they would not want to piggyback on existing social proof that is in your case significant like hundreds of reviews thousands maybe right i haven't really checked uh, the most recent numbers for your books but it, hundreds of reviews still indicates that a lot of people took the time to write a review which also indicates that a lot of many more people don't take the time to write a review right so that there's this kind of group of people that is out there that has read the book but just hasn't taken the time so that is something that a is is very short-sighted not to try to take and to to increase the size of your book to make it um i i think that what is the the terminology in the industry make it fit um with the, to make the spine big enough to put something on it so it, in the store you can actually see it among the other books which is hilarious in the world of digital books and um where it really doesn't matter that kind of tells me that those people have not understood who you're selling these books to where they like to consume them and how they like to consume them and what matters to them, which is social proof, small size, and essentially like a, a continuous, a reliable source of information, which is you as the writer, not the publisher as, as the, the... Exactly. And, and you, you touched upon, you know, I was about to say bingo on the, on the spine thing because they wanted to justify a higher price point and work backwards from that. Right. So if they're going to put a twenty five dollar hardcover book on the shelf, 
it can't be, you know, 70 pages, right? And, and granted, I understand that, but it's like, the, you know, the, the, the spine width isn't uh, thick enough for them to be able to, to write some text on it. But yet, this is what the market is asking for, right? So you're right. I think there is a discrepancy and, and you know, ultimately, they're a business. They want to make money. I get it. But it's just not, not what I wanted to go through uh, at that point in time. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. MicroAcquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. MicroAcquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same, to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join acquire.com. I do wonder though, like you're saying that they wouldn't be able to sell a hardcover book for 25 bucks that is that small. Like who's saying that, right? Like who is actually who has ever even tried to put a hardcover book like that in into the market or on the shelves and then just see what happens right they're so afraid of even running this experiment that they regress to making you fluff your book which then also lowers the quality of the writing and that kind of comes back to you as a writer right now people say oh this guy's just writing fluff pieces and now all your books all your future books too are going to be like associated with a business, a, a bad business decision by a publisher. Good choice not to take that offer. Gotta say, <laughs> and yeah, honestly, just uh, that feels like you would have gotten. I don't know. You probably can't talk about any kind of numbers there, but uh, hopefully a sizable amount of of um yeah yeah sizable amount of cash for them to be able to publish it for you. But man, that would be the only good thing about it. Everything else comes back to you in a negative way. Of course. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's the, the brand hit that you take. It's exactly what they asked for. They wanted to double the book. And I was like, well, I'm going to start having to make stuff up and, and add in more fluff into the book just to just to you know increase the page numbers. And um, yeah, even even the royal, like even um, any advance, that's treated as a loan. Uh, so yeah. meaning yeah. if they gave me $30,000, they're like, well, we want to recoup it first. Uh, from the sales, and then you get that. You know, you know what I mean. Like, so, so it's sort of a, a loan that they want to take for forever. And but, but yeah, the, it didn't work out for me, and I'm so glad I didn't end up going with it because the you know follow up books kind of continued on with the same sort of strategy. And uh, so far, thankfully, it's been it's been successful. You know, one thing of it I want to mention is that for your listeners is that you know the way I view writing books is not just about writing the book as a product. I write a book as a business card on steroids, right? So a book is really this sort of tool, just like social media and content, right? What we're doing here, it, it, it brings more awareness to how you conduct an interview and what you do and, and all the great stuff that you're publishing. A book acts in the same way. It's just a different format, right? And, and the fact is that people pay for it compared to consume free content on Twitter or, or in podcasts. And it has an incredible long-term effect. I mean, one of them is just being established as this thought leader where you get potential opportunities for other, you know, if you're employed, you get other potential employment opportunities. It helps you shine from that perspective. It elevates you as a thought leader in your space, right? So it gives you that added perception. 
and you get invited to give talks, for example, it, it sort of acts as like that business card where people say, oh, you're an expert at this you know, topic X. So we'd love you to, to come over and, and talk at our conference about this subject. So it increases your perceived value and you'll make more money um, because of your book than from your book. Right. So so, you know, forget the royalties, the one dollars and two dollars you get from from Amazon. It's the because you have a book out there, there's a lot more opportunities and ROI uh, uh, effects there that are more long term. So that has also helped over time for sure. Mm. Would you consider that uh, a thing that every founder, every creator, everybody who's building like a public reputation should be doing, like aiming to write a book or just to write at all? I think it's a fantastic marketing tool, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that you don't want to publish something just for the sake of saying you published it, right? So if you feel like, well, I'm going to go and, and hire a ghostwriter to do this for me and, and your heart is not into it, there's, you know, one thing I tell a lot of people I talk to is that if you're going to be writing a book, keep in mind, you're going to be doing a lot more writing and speaking about this topic later on. So if it's not something you're passionate about, if it's not something you're experienced about, it's going to show, right? People are very smart at sniffing out whether someone is using a marketing tool or they're actually trying to provide value for someone who reads it, right? So I always talk about rule number one with writing books is write a really, really useful book. That's it, right? You know, focus on the customer, make sure that the value that you, you provide to your readers is more than what they paid for it in both cash and time, right? So not just cash, not just 10 bucks, it's also the amount of time they spend writing it. If the answer isn't, you know, you're getting 2x or, you know, more value to the reader, then you probably shouldn't write it or you should go back and, and uh, you know, refine it until you get to that uh, confidence level. Yeah, that, that, that time component is super important. And I got to say, I wrote a pretty you know, time-consuming book, like for 500 pages or something. But it is, it is also meant as a manual that just kind of accompanies you throughout your journey, right? You're not supposed to, or if you, you can, but you don't have to read it like all in one go. Because why would you read about exiting your business when you're just starting to build it, right? It's yeah. kind of, there are things that you don't have to know at that point. It's good to know them at some point, but not in the, in the beginning, which, which is why I like books like the ones that you write, short ones, like not just short because you, the, the scope is small. You, you have a pretty huge scope in your books, but you just condense it to a point where every minute spent with the book is actually something that gives you new knowledge. And I, I've seen this in, in other writers too, like Rob Fitzpatrick, is a, I'm a big fan of his yeah. work like with the mom test, right? That is one of the things that is actually selling the book for him is that you can read it in two hours and you have knowledge about how to talk to customers. It's such a specific thing that he just didn't spend any fluff, like any, any time on writing fluff into the book, didn't need it because he wanted to for you to be able to read it in an afternoon and then you know something for the next day. And if more writers were to do this, including myself, I, I think I would be happy, right? Because it, that <laughs> it, it allows people to just find more meaning in the time they spend reading and not go into reading as a, oh, I hope this is going to be helpful kind of thing, but more, okay, I'm going to spend two hours and I know there's something that will come out of this. So short books, well-scoped books, that's perfect. Exactly. And and by the way, just a, a couple of things. One, uh, Rob Fitzpatrick, great fan of his as well. He was on the Writer on the Side podcast too a while ago. So it's, uh, it's great to kind of get, get his perspective on a few things. I also want to point out, 
the short book doesn't like I'm not against long books in general. I'm against long books with a lot of fluff and non-value add material in general. Yeah. That's, I think, the key. A book can be as long as it needs to be, as long as it's value add, right? So, you know, at one point, I might write a four or 500 page book, but it's going to be with the same sort of mentality of I'm going to make the most out of the, the reader's time, right? And I think your book does that. So, and, and you can tell because of the reviews, I've also checked and, and you've got hundreds of reviews as well, which is great because the market is reacting to that. So you usually see a lot of uh, negative reviews on long books that are full of fluff. Like, you know, this could have been two pages instead of like 50, right? Or this chapter, they just went on and on and then they're talking about their services and so on and so forth. So, so I'm not against long books. It's just making sure that it is, you know, overall very useful. Um, you know, another thing is, you know, one of the things we talk about is when you want to write a book, um, as on the side, like it's just a simple formula for me. Um, you know, think of a Venn diagram, right? Three circles. Uh, and this is not going to be some earth shattering moment because it's, it's, it's kind of obvious, but three circles, the first is interest. The second is experience. And the third is market. So what does that mean? Interest first circle is something you have some sort of interest in. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to fall in love and be super, super passionate about it, but you have to be somewhat interested in the topic. Like with the whole crypto thing, previous real estate agents started getting into crypto and they want to write about crypto. But it, it kind of shows that a lot of them were like just, you know, it's a, it's a moneymaker or whatever. So interest is important. Two is experience. Because again, your reader is going to be able to, you know, sniff out if you're just starting out two months ago with this topic, or you've actually done it. Like I know with zero to sold, you had a lot of experience before you sold your company, you bootstrapped it, did great. So you've got a perspective where people, um, you know, trust and can learn from. Uh, and then the third is market. That's the most important one where there's an active buy sell market for that topic that you have an interest in and, and you have some experience in, right? And, you know, you can test that on Amazon. Just look for any other books that, that are selling within that space. You want to look at the sweet spot in those three. Now, those are mandatory, but there's a couple of other sort of optional ways of thinking about this too. Two more criteria. One, evergreen. So it's going to help you all out a lot if you pick a, a, a topic uh, out of many that has an evergreen lifespan or, you know, nothing's 100% evergreen, but... You know, you want a shelf life of a shelf, not a shelf life of a banana. <laughs> I think someone mentioned that and I thought it was very funny, right? So, so basically you want that level of, of uh, um, evergreenness to it. And then the other is job related. So if you're an entrepreneur or you're a full-time employee and you have multiple topics to choose from that, that meet the previous criteria... The one that is job related is going to give you maximum ROI on everything else later on. Because if you're an accountant and you write a book about tax saving strategies, or you're an accountant and you write a book about children's stories, guess which one's going to help your career a lot more? Get invited to speaking, get invited to, you know, give, you know, maybe write white papers or whatever. So that's going to help your career. It's going to help you maximize the return on investment in the book that you have. So I kind of use that for nearly every book that I write. There, there have been some exceptions, uh, but they've been conscious exceptions that I've done on, on that formula. But if you follow that, then the time you spend writing and publishing a book uh, you're not going to lose. It's just going to be a positive return, even if no one buys your book. Like this is so important to try 
and make people understand is that the value you get, the learning you get, just going through the A to Z process, it's like a you know mini MBA on on steroids. Yeah, that's right. Like like even just writing a book, like let alone all the publishing parts and the marketing parts, just gathering gathering the information and putting it into a structure, writing an outline, like making sure the outline has everything you want to say, and then figuring out, oh, there are more things that I want to say, right? That that process alone is already increasing your expertise in the subject. I, I very much agree. And of course, it would be nice to have people read it. But the, it's it's usually with like knowledge production, the act of producing knowledge itself is a knowledge production act like uh, i mean obviously but you know for for the person creating the thing i really like that one question that i have though when you say kind of stay in your lane professionally because that has the highest impact is there a risk of you kind of pigeonholing yourself there like just staying in the subject matter that you already know and never really looking in, into anything else Yeah, there is always that risk. And I'll give you an anecdote about my own book. So I I veered off a little bit. So my main topic that I write about is about management topics, right? So I think it's generic enough as an umbrella to be able to diversify within this umbrella, right? So it doesn't have to be like you can talk entrepreneurship so much that you can talk about within entrepreneurship, marketing, sales, technology, you know, product, that sort of thing. So There is there is a concern if you pigeonhole yourself in a very small niche and only talk about that niche, I agree with you. But if you diversify within that greater general topic, you'll be okay. However, I, I was talking about an exception earlier on, and this is a great segue into that. So in addition to writing management books, um, I travel with my wife and kids. This is pre-COVID every year, and we usually go to Europe and we spend a couple of days in, in a different city on the way back to, I'm Lebanese originally, so on the way back to Lebanon, just kind of take a couple of days. And so I, and I'm a project manager, so I project manage everything, especially with two little kids and you don't want to know what you want to do in, let's say, Rome and, and Paris and all of that. Yep. So I thought, why not put that in a book? Like I already have the itinerary. I, I project managed it and it's two kids. And so I started a series of travel books called, you know, let's say Rome in a weekend with two kids. And then it was Paris in a weekend with two kids and then London in a weekend with two kids. And those books, even though I never blog, I'm not a travel blogger, I'm not interested in, in starting out like a TikTok account about travel. Like none of this is appealing to me. I just wanted to do that book because it's sort of fun for me. And hey, we did this and let's see if, if it's going to work out. And that was, you know, thankfully it did work out. And, you know, I didn't make hundreds of thousands of dollars, but every month or so I do get sales even to this day. Now, the interesting thing is about your question is, if you look at the chart of my Influencing Virtual Teams book um, over the last few years, and then my travel books over the last few years, you see that when COVID hit, March 2020, there was a spike in the Influencing Virtual Teams book, like 2x or 3x, I can't remember, it was crazy for a few months. And then all the travel books went down to zero, right? Because obviously no one wanted to travel during COVID and, and you know the whole lockdown and all of that. So that to me was a wake-up call in terms of diversifying um, your own portfolio. Just like I know Daniel talks about this a lot, Daniel Vassallo, you know, treat everything like a VC, even your small projects as, as a venture capitalist, like try to, 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 to be, you know, reduce risk overall with your portfolio. And that was a wake-up call that, hey, you know, I could have, if I was only focused on travel, if that was my thing, that would have been a huge hit, right? Like I would have went down to zero on everything. So yes, I really think it's a brilliant question. I think pigeonholing, not just, you know, COVID is a once in a, 
you know, X years event, but it's also a good idea to kind of think through. Yeah, knock on wood, right? You never know. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> um, but, you know, this is one thing to, 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 to be cognizant of is that, yes, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself too much. But there's a balance too with if you write for everyone, you write for no one. Right. That's also very important. Like you don't want to make water it down where it's just like, you know, how to lead a team. Right. I mean, that's just too generic. There's so much that that can go into that. So, um, you know, that's that's sort of my my two cents on that. I like your approach generally, like you pick topics that are intersectional in themselves. Right. You have your traveling, you, that particular city intersecting with traveling and then intersect, intersecting it with having two kids. That alone is already niche enough for it not to be too generic, but also not too niche necessarily to, you know, have almost no audience whatsoever. Because, yeah. you know, there are many many in each of these part of the Venn diagram there, and in the middle is still a lot of them. Maybe by far not as many as in each of these groups, but a, a more definable group of people. And I think it's the same for virtual teams, right? Like th that can happen throughout all different kind of industries, but the process and the, the kind of mechanics of how people deal with each other, the dynamics there, they're essentially the same. Like everybody hates it. Or, yes. no, no, no. <laughs> you know, every, everybody <laughs> struggles with things they don't in, innately understand. And and that is, yeah. that is where these books are helpful. I find it interesting that you started these kind of travel books this seems like you're almost accidentally diversifying your portfolio because there's there's some other thing that you are building expertise in even if it's just the weekend it's already more expertise than people who've never been to that city with their kids right. might have right so um have you ever had any books that you wrote that didn't work out at all in in that diversified portfolio yeah definitely i i mean out of the 16 books maybe Seven or eight are fairly selling well, others not so much. And I'll give you a couple of examples on that. Before I do, though, let me just quickly touch upon a couple of other things because I think your listeners are going to get value from it. If you, you know, if you like Google my name uh, and, or on Amazon, you go and, and you check out my name, you're going to see the management books only on one profile. I have another pen name for my travel books, right? So I created Amazon lets you through KDP create up to three different pen names to use different author profiles. And this kind of ties back to your earlier uh, question about, uh, you know, are, you know, one is diversifying your portfolio, but two, you also don't want to be niching in one topic. I also didn't want to be an author where someone checks out my, my author page and it's like, he's talking about travel here. And now he's talking about, you know, this weird topic and, oh, now he's got a book about management. So I made a conscious decision to say, all right, I'm going to create a separate profile. It's still my name. I just use H Osman instead of Hassan Osman and different uh, picture, but it's all there. And then you get to see all those books. And that helps the Amazon algorithm too, when they want to cross recommend people who are interested in traveling to Rome with kids might be interested in Paris or London they're not going to be interested in virtual teams or email communication, right? <laughs> they <laughs> right? might so. be. They might work from there. True. But that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> My, you know what Europeans more than I do. I'm in the U.S., but I, I believe when you're off on vacation, you're off on vacation, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, we don't want to, really want to work from anywhere. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, to answer your earlier question, so there were some books, you know, as, as part of like a couple of experiments I did, uh, on Twitter, maybe back in April, I decided I want to write like the fastest possible book to market, like literally sit down and I have an idea. I want to write a book. I wrote a book in four hours. 
uh, and I published it. It's called Rule Number One. It was heavily depurposed, so it's not like I came up with all the you know content within those four hours. But I just wanted to kind of live tweet, show people that you know it's a lot less intimidating than you think, especially if you're only writing an ebook. You're not writing a, a full book or whatever. So I took like one of my previous books, repurposed a chapter in it, and I published that. Um, and you know, I didn't put a lot of effort into what the title should be or the cover. You know, it was just on Canva. A couple of other things, and I just uh, went ahead on, and I launched it, right? So that's a book that initially, and I did it for charity. I can't remember, maybe 120 copies or something within a few few days, which is cool. But it was literally just people kind of talking about it. But that's an example of a book that it doesn't make any sales today, right? So it's not, uh, it, I don't get a lot of traction on it these days. The books that haven't done so well like, for example, I do have a book about how to get Amazon reviews um, because I've, you know, I've hustled a lot to kind of be able to get a lot of reviews and I wanted to share that. That, surprisingly, it's on Gumroad and it's doing better on Gumroad than Amazon. And I believe it's because there's just a ton of competition and I don't want to spend t- you know, time or money on ads or anything like that. And so that's, you know, that's another book that's not doing uh, so well. Um, one thing I'm going to, I'm going to throw a a pitch here. It's sort of self-serving, but it's not, you know, not asking anyone to buy anything. I have a book called write your book on the side. This used to be paid. It used to be an Amazon bestseller and now it's 100% free. It's 100% free on Amazon and it's 100% free on Gumroad. If you go to writeronthesidecom front page that, that, you know, you can basically download it. Uh, and I talk about everything we're talking about here, the launch strategy, uh, you know, how to select the topic. And you were talking about something earlier, which is so important, I'm glad I remembered, is when you want to narrow down what you want to write about, it's a, it's a science and an art, right? So you don't want it to be too general, but you also don't want it to be too specific. And the way to think about it is to narrow down two things, is to narrow down the outcome of the book and then narrow down the audience of the book. And what I mean by that is instead of saying... Um, you know, the, the outcome of the book is to train your dog to be better, right? Um, it would probably be better to say something like, or an outcome is to train your dog to learn three tricks in 15 days. That's so, you know, the outcome is very specific and you're not going to be talking about every single training method under the sun, right? Same thing with an audience. Instead of saying anyone to learn it, you can say, uh, new dog owners, right, with a new puppy. So people who just got like a, you know, a new puppy and they want to learn how to teach them tricks over time within a couple of weeks, what do they need to do? So by narrow down, narrowing down the audience and the outcome, you're going to get the benefits of niching down. So, you know, like the Rome in a weekend with two kids type effect where I'm not writing about traveling in Rome. It's very specific to parents who are busy and don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time. And that's why I think it sells. It's not because... You know, no one knows me as a travel authority. I'm not, I never even claim to be one. Yet you have people buying it because it solves a small problem for them, right? And it's, and it's low price to, to kind of help them with that. So a lot of ideas that, you know, if you're listening to this, you can just go out there and, and start writing in a, in a particular field that, uh, that you can help people solve a problem. Yeah, I think that's, that most people have this fear of writing because they think they need to write the next 
you know, and then whatever, American novel or the next self-help book, that the, the next Atomic Habits or whatever, which is not the case, right? People just need to write about what they know, about one tiny thing that they know and, and give people the opportunity to learn more about that one thing, how to get it right, how to like avoid the biggest mistakes. They're still going to make mistakes and implementing whatever lessons you might want to teach them. But it's it's much easier to focus on that one thing that it is to to explore the whole space and you don't need to to write a big book either and you said that multiple times i'm grateful for that because i'm i'm prone to ramble that's the thing right both in my my speech and in my writing but it's the the idea that you can just be fine with small and have lots of small that's the kind of the, the small bets approach then you have a solo there there he is again and then see which one resonates more with people and then focus on making that a bigger thing maybe expanding on it maybe giving it another medium in which you talk about it and you do talk about things in different mediums too you don't just have the books you have the courses too right so you kind of you go into talking about the things that people resonate with And then you build more around that. And I feel we are at a point where you've mentioned repurposing now multiple times. And I'm a big fan of repeating myself. I repeat, I'm a big fan of repeating myself. And I think, <laughs> you know, like with content in particular, there there's always just this like, kind of almost happenstance where people get to see it and consume it. But for every person that gets to see and read the thing you say, there's like hundreds out there who don't. And they might show up tomorrow. And if you show the same thing to those people, now they might get to see it. But if you don't, if you only show it once, then it's just that one person. So can you talk to me a bit more about repurposing and how to do that, particularly oh. when it comes to writing? Amazing, amazing topic. I absolutely love this topic. And, and you know, with repurposing, I can talk a, a lot about the different ways in which you think about it. So at a very high level, um, there's a short course that I actually talk about this where you've got four different types of repurposing. Um, think about paid and free, right? So two, two buckets, paid and free. You can have paid to free, free to paid, right? So if you, if you create a book and you take some sections of the book and then publish them on Twitter, that's a paid book that you're using content to send out for free. It could be the other way around. So it could be free. So let's say a blog post that you wrote on your blog and you stitch a few together and you put them into a paid book, right? But then you also have within each uh, within each one of those buckets, so free to free, so you're, it's a free tweet on Twitter, you can actually, or a thread, let's say, you can have that as, you can literally read it on your podcast, right? Kind of say it in your own words or whatever. So that's kind of free tweet or Twitter thread to free podcast. And then the big one, the most exciting one is paid to paid, right? So I've got a, I've got a book. Um, that I spend a lot of time and effort on and I sell it and it's, it's doing well, getting a lot of reviews. Why not take that book, the contents of it, and then go into another paid medium like a course and sell it that way? Because people learn in different ways and, and they consume information in different ways too, right? Uh, I'll give you as an example with numbers, actually. So you mentioned uh, um, a question about the books, right? Or, or some books that didn't do so well. One of the books that did really well initially, but then faded off, was a book about better online meetings. So how to how to conduct better meetings online in COVID, it was a big thing. Now it kind of, you know, there's just a lot of supply. It's not doing so well. I think I did an analysis once within a certain time period. I made like $250 total uh, from the book. Not a lot of money. The same book, same exact content of it. I'm not I'm not joking just created in a, in a course on Udemy, made uh, five figures 
from that course alone. Like I think it was $19,000 or something from that. Same content, nothing, nothing too different. Within that same time period, look at just the discrepancy. And I had no idea. I thought a book was going to be more consumable. It's easier, whatever. But, you know, the, the, the course was doing much, much better overall. So, so I highly, highly recommend that you always think about repurposing, not just paid to paid, but paid to free, free to paid. You know, one of the, the, the hacks, if you're an author and you've got a book on Amazon, is to download the book on Kindle. And Kindle has this feature, which I'm sure you know, is, is the popular highlights, right? You can tell what people highlighted from the book in aggregate. And what that means is that's a data point for you that this stuck with people. Something about it stuck. So you can create some micro content around that. It could be, you know, maybe a Twitter thread or maybe a LinkedIn post or maybe kind of write a short blog post expanding on that particular thing that they actually enjoyed. And it's, a, it's circular because then you'll talk about that and then point back to the book, which ends up selling, which ends up creating more content, right? So, so it's just I'm a huge fan of repurposing. I'm a huge, huge fan of repurposing. I don't know if you got that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, cer certainly important to, to repeat that. I did uh, something very similar. I actually did the exact same thing you just mentioned. Like I looked into my, my Zero to Salt book and I figured out all the highlights in there. And most of them were about one particular topic, which then turned into my second book. So it's kind of like pay to pay, but in a different way. Like that, that feature is, is uh, surprisingly effective at figuring out what, what people care about. And it's also surprisingly hard to do because apparently Amazon is just not willing to share this information other than you buying your own book reading it on your device and then you have to buy it in the right store because you only get the highlights of people in that country where you buy it so there's a lot of complexity that should not be there i think the the analytics the insights should be on kdp on amazon's uh, publishing platform but um apparently they don't care which is uh, another thing that i kind of wanted to to mention here you said you, you use amazon and you use udemy both of these are rather huge if not the biggest platforms in their space and that kind of puts you into a pretty like into a power dynamic where you don't have much say, right? You don't you don't really get to choose how much money you pay. Both on Amazon and on KD uh, on on uh, Udemy, you have these tiers of price where they kind of decide how much they get until a certain point, and you know like the the pricing structure is very very in their favor. And also discovery is hard because a lot of people are on the platforms. How do you handle that? And is 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 there any reason why you still would go with these platforms um, other than distribution and maybe discoverability compared to self-publishing these things? Yeah, fantastic question. Look, I'm fully aware of the pros and cons of being part of a marketplace versus doing it on your own because I've tried doing things on my own as well. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Gumroad. I'm an investor in Gumroad actually too, just as a disclaimer. And I've also, um, I've, I've, I ran cohort-based courses on Gumroad, which were much more fruitful than, than what I get uh, from leveraging those marketplaces. However, going back to the initial premise that I've got a full-time job, full-time family, and then X amount of time, which is free, I could follow one of two things. I can say I can you know disconnect from the, the big marketplaces like Amazon and Udemy and then just you know move everything to my own platform, maybe use Teachable, Kajabi, whatever, and then heavily focus on the marketing to get that. Maybe I might make a little bit more profit. That that could be um, one strategy. Or 
I continue with a volume-based game, which is I'm writing my next book and I'm creating my next course in parallel where I put this in the machine and it takes care of it, right? And I noticed for me is that I enjoy creating more than I enjoy marketing, right? Like that's that's one thing about me in particular is that I, I'm okay. They take a crazy amount of a cut from my courses. Like in some courses, you know, a transaction ends up being like two bucks or maybe a buck and a half, right? And even though it's like $200 because they discount it and then there's the ad fees and all, so on and so forth. But to me, that $2 was something I would never get because it's someone in, let's say, India or China where the whole parity pricing and technology that they have and the whole engine behind their ad business that I would never get. And so far, you know, knock on wood, very fortunate. I don't know how long this will last, but overall, it's it's around, you know, five figures a month total from from between the books and, and the, the courses, which I'm like, well... Do I want to let that go and then have to deal with the headache of, of doing that? Or should I just double down on it, right? So even though even though they're taking a, an insane cut from everything, I'm still at a stage where I'm super happy that they're taking it <laughs> because they're helping me with, with that. Another thing, again, I want to point double back on um, of it is, is the, the second order effects of that. So, you know... Someone maybe a few months ago was like, listen, we want to, we, we were looking for someone to talk about hybrid work at our organization. I was like, okay, great. Uh, first question I usually ask is, how do you find about me? They're like, well, we Googled hybrid work and, and a book popped up and we saw your name, which was like, great. And then, but we started looking again. We went on Udemy and we looked at hybrid work and we saw your name. We're like, all right, this is the guy. So what that, what that meant is it's also a signal in the market of uh, authority in a space, right? So that's so important that it's, if I publish that course on my own, on Teachable, on my own blog, it's not going to have the same effect as Udemy with 15,000 reviews on that course, right? It's a signal from the market that this guy knows what he's doing. And so we want to, you know, get him to, to help us out with a problem or to speak and all of that. So that's another effect of why I leverage platforms versus my own. But again, at one point, you never know, recession around the corner. Next day, I call you up, Robert. I'm like, I'm lost. I lost my job. <laughs> what are some tactics for building in public? Help. <laughs> well, so, I have a course on Udemy, so you know. <laughs> uh, that that is hilarious. But honestly, I I love I love your long term perspective because what you do is you invest in yourself and your your public pr brand and the attention of other people. You almost do like a writer SEO, like you do SEO beyond your own blog. You do SEO using the SEO ranking of these marketplaces places so that the things you have there show up when people search for it that's genius because most people think of seo like oh yeah i should put an h2 tag somewhere in my blog post but that's not what it is as at least not exclusively it's about like making yourself visible by being in places that are seen right that's kind of what it is and i, I love that you don't care about the the cut that they take which is always substantial because that's how these platforms kind of kind of work but that you see this as a sign of somebody paying attention that otherwise would have not paid attention to you. And it, it's kind of reminds me of that saying, like 100% of nothing is still nothing. So no matter if you, if, if where you might sell your thing, if people don't buy it, right, you can make no money. Even if you would have made the whole thing. Like it's, I, I see that the same thing on Amazon. Like my experience is exactly the same. Amazon sales are steady. Like I sell books every single day, which is bizarre if you think about it, like for something where I don't really do much other than being a person that talks about their books from time to time. But on Gumroad, 
it's ex extremely sporadic and it sometimes happens in bursts when you somebody links the product or there's an affiliate sale or something like that right but it, it's just it is by far not as spread out and diversified as the sale is on udemy or where else do i have the thing like teach you know skillshare i think and you know all these these, these little platforms. And all of these are experimental to me. I didn't know where I was going to go and where things would sell well. And when I launched my course, for example, Friend You're Following, and it, it sells, I think, the best still on Gumroad at this point, but it is, has a significant amount of sales on Udemy as well because it's there. And it's not as expensive, so or it is expensive, but you know they mark it down all the time without any control that I would have. So I guess that's, that's what you pay for it. But... Um, that's just what it is. And it, it gives people the awareness of my presence in the space. And you're absolutely right. That increases reputation. They come to Twitter, see my name, follow me there, increasing my amount of followers, which again, influences all these other things as well. Yeah, it's uh, what I like about this is that you're playing this infinite game of you, you, you want to stay in the space. You want to stay a person that can write books that help people. You don't want to be the person that wrote the book. You want to stay the person that writes the books. And that is amazing. I really, really appreciate that about you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that that comment. And, and just a couple of notes on, on what you said. Absolutely about the long-term game. One thing to note is that I'm very fortunate that I have a full-time job, right? Again, it's easy for me to say I'm okay with Udemy and Amazon taking a huge cut because I can afford if it's zero, like if the total thing is zero. So, it, it, you know, that's a part of it. I know if I was not fortunate to have a full-time job or maybe even wanted to have a job, I might think a little bit differently, but I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that it works, right? Like I actually see those numbers and it works. And yes, the SEO, the borrowed SEO, like if you Google, I was just for fun Googling my name the other day and like the top 10 results on Google had to do with me and 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 not because I'm in some SEO expert. It's because Amazon and Udemy are on there, right? So it's my profile on those platforms that spend millions of dollars in SEO kind of piggyback on that and it helps um, through that too. So uh, so yes, it, it also helps that way. And I love what you're doing is that you're leveraging both, right? So you're actually putting it on Udemy and on your own on Gumroad and then same thing with, with the books. Which is not a which is not a bad thing either, right? You can still do that. So yeah, it's an ex accessibility thing for me because some people don't have access to Udemy or Amazon for that matter, yeah. right? Like the 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 fact that my books are also on Gumroad is mostly because there are countries where Amazon doesn't sell anything, neither yeah. paper nor ebook, and and for them to be able to buy the thing at a obviously heavily discounted rate as well, because these are usually countries with a pretty low like ratio of their currency to the dollar, so there's the whole uh, purchasing power parity pricing in there too that I have control over at least because I don't have control over that on Amazon. And I right. really don't have control over the, many of these things on Udemy either. So platforms kind of have their thing. And at least I have some control for those edge cases, but they mean a lot. Like I've, I've had people buying my book from like Afghanistan and they were saying like, we can never buy these books anywhere else. We kind of have yeah. to pirate them. And here's your opportunity <laughs> to actually have somebody legally purchase your book and then tell their friends that they can finally buy one of the books that they always wanted to read. It just, right. you, you don't really think about this, but you're like Amazon and, and Udemy, they, they are ubiquitous, but they're not everywhere. <laughs> you know, they're not. You know, yeah, yeah. They, they are all over the place, but not everywhere. They're not available all, all over the world. So that's, that's a big thing to at least have the option. That's why I do it. But I also understand that when you do it on the side, and I kind of want to close with this, you, you kind of focus on having the largest impact 
on you both, both your sales, your reputation building, and the amount of people who can read it as you can with as few steps as possible. So one thing I would like to know from you, a person who has a, a big job and has a big on the side writing job as well, how do you stay consistent? How do you keep writing when you come home from work? <laughs> when you, you know, when you have already spent a lot of mental energy on important things in a, in a business, how do you keep yourself from just zoning out and how do you focus on making new books happen? Yeah. So I'll give you a two-part answer, how I started and how I do it now. How I started, which will probably apply to a lot of people because now, of course, with 16 books, experience uh, affects things. Five days a week, 30 minutes a day, take the weekends off. It'll take you six months to get a short book done. So there's no way around it. You need to force a block of time, right? I think everyone can find 30 minutes a day. Just don't watch Netflix or whatever for a couple of months. But it's literally, uh, you know, 30 minutes a day. And those 30 minutes can be different for everyone. It's either waking up a little bit early and doing it before work. To others, it's going coming back home, having dinner. And then after the kids are asleep or if you don't have kids, you just, you know, later in the night when, when you've got TV on in the background, you know, that's, that's sort of how long it takes on average to get a short book done force a block of time. Now I do it when I'm inspired, honestly, like, it, you know, I might have three months, I don't want to do anything. And then suddenly in a month, I'm like, just flowing. So on a Saturday, five hours. So it's very sporadic. Now I just listen to to my my signals. Uh, if I'm too lazy, I'm too lazy. I'm just not going to force myself to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you've kind of developed this self reflected understanding of when it's going to be working and when it's not. Yeah. Exactly. Now, again, if I lose a job, that would be a totally different light under the fire type of thing, right? Because now I, I, you know, I enjoy at least the luxury of saying if I'm too, you know, I'm not in the mood, I'm not in the mood. Uh, but initially, I think it's important. If you want to get that book done, you have to sort of sit down and write. Well, one of the most amazing things about you and your journey is that you show people that you can have a job and still write books. You know, you didn't have to make it your full-time thing. You still don't have to. And I really hope you don't ever need to have to, right? That you, you can always make the choice of writing and not be forced to write. Hassan, thank you so much for talking to me today and like sharing all these, these stories. I, I love the way you, you communicate your journey. It's really nice. It's full of stories that are very relatable to most people who have a job or who freelance the whole day or, or consultants or whatever it may be they, who want to do something else, who want to have this, this business card on steroids, who want to get their knowledge out there in a form for other people to consume. I think it was very inspirational, all the things you, you told me today. So thank you so much. And please tell people where they can find you and your work. That's the most important part. First of all, thank you so much for the kind words, uh, Arvid. I, I really enjoy the conversation today. Great questions. Uh, uh, looking forward to connecting more online. If you'd like to reach out and connect with me, I am at writerontheside.com. All one word. I've got my Twitter profile there. I've got my free book on there too. Uh, and then my podcast, you can actually find Ovid's uh, podcast with me uh, on episode 49. So writeronthesidecom forward slash 049. And you get to see some of the insights that he shared when uh, he first launched his book. So thanks again for having me on the show. This was a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming. Take care. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Bootstrap Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Ovid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me in the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. 
any of this will help the show. So thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.